I just want to say how thankful I am to be with God's people on the Lord's Day. And it is good to see all of your faces this morning. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and my privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel of Luke. We'll pick up where we left off last Lord's Day in Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible here at church, please take one from the pew in front of you. If you grab one of the black ones, you'll find Luke chapter 9 on page 867. As we do here, we're going to work our way through this passage a little bit at a time, verse by verse. We're making our way through Luke's gospel together. Today, we are going to be reading from verse 18 all the way down to verse 27, and then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and we'll break this passage down and seek understanding from it. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, it happened as Jesus was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now through your Son, Jesus, and we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand your Word. In these words from our Master, let us understand who He is, what He has done, and knowing these things, follow Him faithfulness and steadfastness. 
that Christ would be all and to all. Amen. What is the most important question you've ever been asked? You know, there are some questions that are so important that the very answer you give determines the course of your life. They're like hinges, like forks in the road. And however you answer the question determines the course of your life. Will you marry me? That's one of the questions. A very important question. A hinge question. Will you take that job in Des Moines? Will you go to college? Will you go into the service? Will you sell everything you own and be a missionary to the unreached? Will you join the church? Will you adopt? These are massively important questions. These are hinge questions. Well, there are other questions that you may be asked, which at the moment don't really seem like they're important questions, but they turn out to be massively important questions as well. Will you share the gospel with your neighbor? Will you invite the Mormon into your home or hide behind the couch? Will you take that promotion at work, which gives you more money, but takes more of your time away from your family? Will you get up early to read the Bible and to study and to pray? Is cereal soup? Don't sleep on that question. It's an important one. <laughs> Maybe not as important as the others. There is one question which towers above all other questions. One question that we must all answer. Actually, it's one question that right now in this very moment you are answering whether you realize it or not. It is so important that this question will not only determine the course of your life today and this week and this month, but it will determine the course of your life and your eternity. And it is the question that Jesus asks in the passage before us today. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? It is the most important question there is. And how you answer sets the direction for everything in your life. And how you answer in many ways determines how you will answer all those other questions. This question is not only the hinge question of our life, it's actually the hinge question of this entire gospel. If you remember, from the very first time we were together in the gospel of Luke, Luke told us why he wrote this gospel. So that you, the reader, would have certainty concerning this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Luke is answering the question, who do you say I am? So this passage 
not only tells us who Jesus is, this passage also tells us what Jesus came to do. And then this passage tells us what we should do in response to who he is and what he has done. This is an incredibly helpful passage of Scripture. And I hope that the Lord would use this passage in your life fruitfully. Here's the big idea this morning. You can see it on the screen. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the suffering Savior of the world. And we are to give Him our life and our all. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the suffering Savior of the world. Give Him your life and your all. Three parts to this passage which will walk through together. Jesus is the Messiah of God, verses 18 to 20. Jesus is the suffering Savior, verses 21 and 22. And then finally, Jesus demands our life and our all, in verses 23 to 27. First point, Jesus is the Messiah of God. Let's read verses 18 to 20 one, one more time. Now it happened as as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And the answer is, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. And Jesus turned the question on them and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The other synoptic gospels tells us that Jesus is at the city called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the Gentile area, beautiful area. Luke doesn't mention where Jesus is, but Luke does tell us what Jesus is doing. Luke says Jesus is praying. And of all the four gospels, Luke's gospel tells us more about the prayer life of the Lord Jesus than the others. Jesus is like a flawless diamond, and God the Father shines His light on the diamond, and it spreads color and hue, and the different gospel writers under the inspiration of the Spirit pick up on these different hues of the Lord, and Luke uniquely picks up on the prayer hue of the life of the Lord Jesus. We are told seven times in this gospel that Jesus prayed. He prays at each major crossroad of His life. He prayed at His baptism. He prayed when his fame was spreading. He prayed when he chose 12. He prays here before asking the great question. We see him, Lord willing, next week praying at the transfiguration. He prays when he teaches the disciples to pray. And then finally, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before he is arrested and crucified. I would also like to note that Luke says Jesus is praying alone. And the disciples are with him. And I hope this is of some consolation to you young mothers who know what it's like to be alone and have people with you. So that when your husband comes home and says, what do you mean you need to be alone? You've been alone all day long. And you can look at your husband and you can love him and you can remember your Savior and move on about your day. Because Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be alone and have people with you. Jesus asks the disciples, what are the people saying about me? Now, we've talked about this before. 
Jesus asking questions. When the Lord asks questions, it's not because he's gathering intelligence. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they hid themselves in the garden. And God is walking through the garden and he calls out to Adam and he says, where are you? And it's not because God can't see a mostly naked man standing behind a pine tree peering through the branches. I can see your feet, Adam. God isn't asking for his sake. When God asks questions, he asks it for their sake. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, boys, tell me what's going on. Jesus' question is not for him. It's for the disciples. And neither is Jesus checking on his reputation. It's not like Jesus is checking on his socials. Like, how many likes am I getting on my feeding the 5,000 selfie? The Bible says that Jesus is not swayed by anyone's opinion. Jesus is asking this question because this is what Jesus' ministry is all about. And he's telling the disciples. His ministry exists to tell the truth about who he is. It's the reason he healed the sick. It's the reason he raised the dead. It's the reason he fed the 5,000. All of it pointing to who he is. And so it does matter. Who do people say that I am? And we should give the disciples some credit here because it seems that they are tuned in to the crowd and Jesus' reputation. They give the same answer to that question that perplexed Herod in verse 9. Some say that you are John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, back from the dead. Some people say that you're one of the prophets, back from the dead. Apparently people had a lot of expectations about people coming back from the dead. But there's something about the ministry of Jesus which reminded the crowds of the prophets of old. John the Baptist yelled at people and ate bugs. Elijah faced down 450 false prophets and called their God by some kind of name and then killed them all. Sarah and I have been reading through Jeremiah together. Jeremiah will preach and the people will reject his message and they'll throw him in a prison or in a hole and then they'll dig him out and they'll just keep preaching. What is it about Jesus that gets folks thinking that he's like one of those men? Was it the boldness of his preaching? Was it the passion he had for his people? Was it his certainty about God's word? Was it his miracles? Probably people thought that Jesus was the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old prophecy from Moses that said that after Moses, another prophet would come. A prophet, in the same way that Moses delivered God's people out of Egypt, would deliver God's people from Rome. Whatever the reason. For the people's expectation about who Jesus is and his likeness to the prophets of old. Jesus turns the question on the disciples. In verse 20, 
And he said to them, yeah, but who do you say that I am? I mean, what others say about me, that's one thing. But who do you say that I am? To all of my non-Christian guests here with us today, you've heard a lot in the service so far about who Jesus is. You've heard about Jesus and what he has done and who he is in our songs, in our prayers. You heard about him, you saw him as we took the Lord's Supper together. We have made witness as to who this man is. Now it's on you, friend. Who do you say he is? Your answer will determine where you will spend eternity. It is the most important question you've ever been asked. You should pray that God would reveal to you the right answer, as he did to the Apostle Peter, as he did to the the other apostles, as he has done for all the Christians in this room. Peter answers the question, you are the Christ of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name, so it's not like Mary and Joseph. Christ had Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. He is Jesus the Christ. The word means the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach. Ever since the beginning of the Bible, there has been an expectation of one who would come, who would crush the enemy of mankind. He would be a man like Adam. He would be a preacher like Noah. He would be a prophet like Moses. He would be a king like David. He would be the anointed one, the chosen one of God to deliver God's people from their enemies and establish God's kingdom on the earth. And Peter says... That's you. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. You're the deliverer we've been waiting for. You're the one. You're the one Abraham saw and rejoiced. You're the one. Isaiah saw high and lifted up. You're the one Daniel saw and called one like the Son of Man to whom all the kingdoms of the earth were given and all the praise of all the people was offered. That's who you are. That's what Peter said. We call this the great confession. It is a high point in Peter's life. That's who he is. But what will he do? And that brings us to the next section, verses 21 to 22. He is the Christ of God. Now what will he do? Verse 21. And strictly charged them and commanded them, tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, as I mentioned, Peter has just made the great confession. He has given the only right answer to the most important question ever asked. 
This is a high point in his life. You might expect heaven to break open and angels to sing. You might expect the scene from the Christmas story where the teacher reads Ralphie's little essay and she says, A plus, 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 Peter, and the classmates lift him up. That's what you would expect. But instead, what do you get Jesus doing? Great answer. Tell no one. He strictly charges Peter and the disciples not to tell anyone who he is. Which is, it's just so surprising. Well, he just sent them out on a mission trip just a couple of weeks ago. Our church has just spent an entire week praying about global missions, asking, Lord, do you want me to sell everything I have and go to the nations? How can I evangelize my neighbors? And, and, and right here, Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm the Christ of God, now shut your mouth. It's confusing. Well, there's a difference between this day and our day. There's a difference between 32 AD, which is probably when this is happening, and 2022 AD. And the difference between 32 AD and 2022 AD is 33 AD. And so Jesus explains, he is the Messiah of God. And now he tells the disciples, for the first time, what he has come to do. See, here he tells the disciples, tell no one. But in a few months from now, he's going to tell the disciples, now I want you to tell everyone who I am. But he's got to do something first. As the Christ, the anointed one of God, as the deliverer of God's people, he has to accomplish that deliverance. And so he tells us how he's going to do that. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected, be killed, be raised on the third day. Take note of that very important word, must. And remember that very important word when you celebrate Christmas in a couple of weeks. Jesus came to suffer. Jesus came to be rejected. Jesus came to be killed. And Jesus came to be raised to life. To separate Christmas from Good Easter, or from Good Friday and from Easter, is to misunderstand Christmas altogether. He came to be killed and raised to life. Yes, it's true that he was a baby laid in a manger, and let's give praise to God for this. But that baby grew into a man who hung on a cross and was laid in a grave and was raised from the dead. The people's expectation was that the Messiah of God would ride into Jerusalem on a horse of war. And that he would break the bonds of Rome and that he would take the throne of David. And you know, they were right about that. Messiah will 
But first, he must suffer. First, he must be rejected. First, he must be conquered by sin and death and be raised to life in order to conquer sin and death. You see, this is what the crowds didn't understand. Caesar is not their main problem. Sin is their main problem. Mankind's treason against a holy God is the problem. And Israel's problems with Rome paled in comparison to Israel's problem with God. All Caesar can do is tax you, oppress you, arrest you, and kill you. That's all he can do. And Jesus said later in in the Gospel of Luke, don't fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. And then he says, but I will warn you who you should fear. Fear him. Who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Caesar is not their problem. Pontius Pilate is not their big problem. Herod is not their big problem. Their big problem is with God. And so Jesus came to deal with Israel's biggest problem. He came to suffer on the cross and to pay the penalty of sin and to reconcile sinners to God. Jesus suffered the rejection of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes so that those of us who deserve to be rejected by God would be accepted by Him. And Jesus died the death that is demanded of every person who has spurned the love of God. And when God raised him to life on the third day, he secured eternal life for any, for all who turn to him in faith. My non-Christian guest, this really applies to you now. You've heard who this man is. You've heard what he has done. And so now the question must be answered. Who do you say he is? Is he the Messiah? The Savior of the world? Friend, turn to him. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. And be saved. After the service is over here today, talk with someone. Tell them you'd like to become a Christian. They'll pray with you, and they'll study the Bible with you, and they'll help you know the right answer to the most important question ever asked. So point one, Jesus is the Christ. Point two, Jesus is the suffering Savior. And now we consider, in point three, all that means for us. Because of who He is, because of what He's done, How do we respond? How should we respond? And here we have the answer to that in the verses that follow where Jesus demands our life and our all. This is verse 23. 
And Jesus said, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Note carefully the word all in verse 23. This call that Jesus makes is not just to the apostles. It is to all. This call to give everything for Christ is not a call for the pastors or for the missionaries or for the super-Christians. It is for all. I keep on saying that we should be praying, God, do you want me to sell everything I have and go to the nations and tell people about Jesus somewhere else? And I, I, I'm afraid that that feels to many like, wow, I can't, are you serious? Some people have that kind of devotion? Yeah, they call them Christians. Whether you're a 12-year-old about to enter the waters of baptism or a 64-year-old getting ready for retirement or a 92-year-old getting ready for glory, this is the call of the Christian life to give everything to this man. This is what it means to be a Christian. That's not radical Christianity. That's Christianity. To be a Christian means to follow Christ. And verse 23 tells us what following Christ looks like. He gives us three things. We're going to spend some time in verse 23. It's a really important one. For three things first. If anyone would come after me, first one, let him deny himself. So that's the first thing that it means to be a Christian. To deny yourself. Now, I don't take Jesus to mean deny yourself certain luxuries or certain pleasures like chocolate and beach vacations, although that might be included in that. To deny yourself means to disown yourself. It is a renunciation of your preference for self-rule. It is to keep the first commandment, to have no other gods before the God including the God of self. To deny yourself means to give up the right to do things your way and according to your wisdom and according to your ambitions. Lean into Jesus' words here. Consider the implications. Consider his assessment of the human condition. 
He says this against every notion that human beings are basically good. Because he doesn't say, deny the part of you that is wrong. He doesn't say, deny the part of you that is evil. He says, deny yourself, unqualified, deny yourself. The Lord is saying that we're so messed up that our desires are so rotten that we're so turned in on ourselves that the whole self must be denied. Do you see how different this is from the sermon that you hear Monday through Saturday from the world, from media? Those sermons go like this. Believe in yourself. Accept yourself. Live your own truth. And I get so concerned that we hear this message so often Monday through Saturday, then Monday through Saturday, then Monday through Saturday, and then we show up on a Sunday morning once in a while and we hear someone say, no, 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 deny yourself. And it feels like it's just wrong. Like, I'm hearing from everyone else to accept myself. And now I'm hearing from this person to deny myself. But dear brothers and sisters, the, the, the words of Jesus must become so much louder in our minds than any other voice. So listen to the Savior here. You are not who you feel yourself to be. If, if that were true, then the people in this room would be miserable and the people out there would be happy as larks. But I don't know what non-believers you know. I have not found that to be the case. In fact, what I find is anxiety and depression on an all-time rise. There's no hope in the message, accept yourself, believe in yourself. Because there's no savior in that message. It's just wrong. You are not who you feel yourself to be. You are who your creator made you to be. So every time, Monday through Saturday, you hear that message, believe in yourself, accept yourself, say, no! That's not what my Jesus said. He said, to deny myself. Then he takes it even further. If you think that's intense, keep reading. Deny yourself, that's first. Second, to be a Christian means to take up your cross daily. Now, let me remind you, the cross is not a pretty little emblem that you wear around your neck. It's an execution device. Criminals sentenced to death would carry a cross 
through the city and village on the way to the place of their execution. It was a symbol of suffering and shame. And in some sense, it is a little strange that it has become the symbol of the Christian religion. It would be like the logo of our church being the guillotine or the electric chair. It'd just be weird. But in another sense, it isn't strange, is it? Because that's what our religion is about. The man who took suffering, who took shame to save sinners from their sin. Being a Christian means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to follow the one who is on his way to a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what an altar call should be. Come and die. When you're sharing the gospel with your family and your friends and your neighbors and you say, would you like to repent of your sins and, and believe in Jesus Christ, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Not wrong to say that. Just understand what you're asking those people to do. To deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. So what does Jesus mean? Take up your cross. Does he mean physically die? Maybe, for some. But it's a metaphor. The metaphor here means that the Christian life involves a daily decision to put to death what is earthly in us. We like to say, well, I'm bearing the cross when I'm talking about a mean boss. This is just the cross I have to bear. I've got a nosy mother-in-law. That's my cross that I have to bear. That's probably what, not Je what Jesus is talking about. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He told the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. And then he gives you a list. Don't you like the lists in the Bible? He gives you a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Then he goes on. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Christian, you are not to just refrain from these things. You are to kill them. Do you catch how often Jesus says that Christians are to do this? Take up your cross on the Lord's day. Take up your cross on Saturday night so that you can get to bed on time so that you can get to church on the Lord's day. Take up your cross daily. The Christian 
life involves a daily conscious decision to put earthly desires to the death. Brother, sister, the, the reality is that you are at war within yourself. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. To be a Christian means to deny yourself. To crucify your flesh every day. And then third, to be a Christian means to follow Christ. So the evidence that you are in Christ is the confession that you've made. That Jesus is the Christ. Because of that, the self-sacrificial life of following him. A life of denying yourself. A life of taking up your cross. A life of following him. This is why John said this in 1 John 2. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is why we read the Bible every day. So that we can learn more about the glories of this man, Jesus Christ. And so that in him we can attach the satisfaction of our soul to him. And that by learning about him and how he lived, we can follow him. And how did Jesus walk? I've said this before, but that's the problem with the WWJD bracelets. I love them. love the idea. love the notion. But I, I, I've talked to a lot of people. And a lot of people don't WDJD. They don't know what Jesus did. Like, what would Jesus do? You're not going to know what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did. So we read the Bible to find out what Jesus did. And the Bible tells us that Jesus always does the thing that pleased the Father. And so this is our life. This is our marching orders. Paul said, whether we are at home or whether we are away, we make it our aim to please him. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians live in the way that Jesus lived. Christians love the way that Jesus loved. Christians are tender in the places where Jesus is tender. Christians are tough in the places where Jesus is tough. Like him, we do not seek our own will, but we seek the will of our Father in heaven. This is what it means when Christians talk about sanctification. It's a sanctification, it's a really good Bible word. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. It's the daily lifelong process wrought by God and empowered by God, in which all that we are and all that we do, we seek to bring glory to the Father by being more like Christ. And every place we fail, we reform. Every place we fail, we repent. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. 
time to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. As we're following his footsteps, we tend to step to this direction. And the Spirit of God in his gentleness says, up, 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 up. Father, forgive me. And they get back in track. This is the, this is the daily Christian life. The first of Luther's 95 theses, which he nailed to the church door at Wittenberg in Germany, went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance isn't the thing that you did to become a Christian. That was a part of it. But now that you are a Christian, repentance is the thing that you do constantly. It's the clear recognition that I'm going in this direction and my Lord's going in this direction and I've got to change. I've got to acknowledge that there's something wrong with me. I've done the wrong thing. Lord, please forgive me and strengthen me that I would follow you more faithfully. That's the Christian life. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And now let's heed the master's warnings in the verses that follow. We'll speed up a little bit here. He says that whoever would save his life will lose it. You see, because who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, he demands our entire life. Which means that following Jesus is all or nothing. I hope this doesn't seem radical to you, but you're either all in or you're not in at all. If you're not getting that, it's okay. Stick with us. In in several months from now, we'll see more of this in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to follow him. So keep coming back. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who Peter says he is, if he is who the church said he is for 2,000 years, then building your life on anyone or anything else is the definition of foolishness. And so the Lord is warning us. You build your life on anything else, it is a waste. You could become richer than a Saudi prince, prettier than a fashion model, more respected than the Queen of England. But if Christ is not all, then your life is a waste. The only response to who this man is and what he has done is to fall at his feet and to confess him as the Lord and to give your whole life to him, to joyful and profoundly rewarding life of self-sacrifice in following him wherever he goes. And then the Lord tells us what comes to those who refuse to do so. Verse 26. He foretells of another coming. A second advent. In the season of the year, we're celebrating the first advent. 
Jesus is talking about the second advent when he comes in his glory, the glory of his Father, the glory of the angels. And whoever is ashamed of him at his second coming, and whoever is ashamed of his words, he says, I will be ashamed of you. First John 2 tells us that when Jesus appears, we should have confidence in him and not shrink from him at his coming. There will be those that when Jesus appears will shriek in shame. Because that will be the moment that they have realized they have built their life on the wrong things. They have wasted this life. They've rejected God's call to self-denial and cross-carrying and following Him. They've built their life their way. And on balance, the sum total of their life is nothing. And Christ is ashamed of them. And then the Lord makes another promise that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Most commentators take this to be a reference to, could be a number of things, could be a combination of things, could be the transfiguration in the text to come, could be his being hung on the cross, raised from the dead, could be Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out, could be 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed. Either way, the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign of, of King Jesus is inaugurated at his first coming culminated in his second coming. We've all heard the question this morning. Who do you say I am? And so I must ask, have you made the good confession? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the suffering Savior whose life was the atonement for your sin? Is that who this man is? And if so, give him your life and your all. And let the answer to this question set the direction of your life. When you sin, and after you sin, when you hear the enemy's condemning words, remember this question. Who do you say I am? Did my death and my resurrection secure God's mercy for your sin or not? If he is the Christ, then rest in his finished work and receive mercy for your sin. When you're facing temptation this week, remember this question. When you're feeling your flesh pining toward impurity and evil desire and anger and malice and unkind words, remember this question. Who do you say I am? Is he the Christ of God, the suffering Savior whose life purchased your freedom from the power of sin? Is Jesus worthy of self-denial in that moment? 
will you find in him the strength and the rest that you need to resist evil and to walk in righteousness. When you're facing doubt, when death or darkness hides his lovely face, when your family, when your friends reject you, remember this question. Who do you say I am? Is he the resurrected Lord? Is he seated at the right hand of the Father? Is he the friend who will stick closer than a brother? And if so, find rest for your soul in him. Rest in his promises. Rest in his love. Rest in his care. Rest in his power to keep you. Who do you say he is? Is he the Christ of God? Is he the suffering Savior of the world? Is he worthy of your everything? If the answer is yes, then you can sing anew the words that Mr. Watts taught us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you there are so many things that we've held back and not laid down for Jesus' sake. Sometimes our ambitions, our words, how we spend our time and our money betray that confession. Evil desires, harshness, impatience, obscene talk. Lord, please forgive us for these things. Will you give us new eyes to see the glories of Jesus this week? And in him, may our hearts find the satisfaction of their single and greatest desire. And Lord, please grant the strength to deny ourselves, to carry our cross, and to follow Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living sinlessly before the Father and accomplishing that which we could have never accomplished on our own. Pray for us, O Lord. Give us faith to trust in you and to put you at the center of our lives and by your Spirit to do all things for the glory of God alone. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. We do an assurance of pardon if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible gives you assurances that God has given you. One of those comes from Psalm chapter 86, verse 5, where we read, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Please join.